Welcome to Citizens Climate Radio. In this show, we highlight people's stories, we celebrate your successes, and together, we share strategies for talking about climate change. I'm your host, Peter Santoscano. Welcome to Episode 73 of Citizens Climate Radio, a project of Citizens Climate Education. This episode is airing on Friday, June 24th, 2022. We are celebrating our sixth anniversary as a podcast. In this episode, we share with you a good news report about a brand new climate curriculum for schools. It will provide engaging, informed, and action-driven lessons for middle school teachers and their students. Sharon Bagatelle, Citizens Climate's National Youth Action Team Coordinator, first announced the completion of the new curriculum at this month's Citizens Climate International Conference. Sharon tells us about the project and just how special the curriculum will be for teachers and their learners. In the art house, singer-songwriter Jody Heights shares with us her beautiful and moving new song, The Iceberg. But first, as a podcaster, I feel like I have a special power to operate a time machine. I get to go into our back catalog and revisit previous stories and guests. Listening to these often reveals just how far we've come while also helping me see more clearly the next steps we need to take. It was back in 2016 when we premiered our first episode. Citizens Climate Lobby was still a small organization with a small staff and big dreams. Now, with well over 250,000 volunteers, so many more than that, and over 100 staff members, CCL has made its mark in the climate scene. It has helped to shift the conversation to bipartisan solutions, especially carbon fee and dividend. Recently, I sat down and listened to that first episode. It featured CCL founder Marshall Saunders and a once-reluctant climate advocate Mark Reynolds. Their personal stories of transformation still move me today. Hearing about the first tentative and even ridiculous steps they took to start the organization are even more amazing now when I see how much fruit their early efforts have borne. Much has changed since then. Sadly, Marshall Saunders died in December 2019. His absence is strongly felt by those who knew him and were inspired by him. There are many volunteers and even staff who have never met Marshall or had the privilege of hearing his moving, soul-stirring speeches. Mark Reynolds, who since 2009 was executive director of the organization, retired earlier this year. Mark now spends a lot of time with his grandchildren, and he serves on Citizens Climate's governing board. The new executive director is CCLer Madeline Para. Over 10 years ago, Madeline began as a volunteer to start CCL chapters in her home state of Wisconsin. Then she came on staff to help support volunteers in their efforts. In fact, it was Madeline Para, along with Ricky Bradley, who is CCL's Senior Director of Information Technology, who first invited me to create and host this podcast. A big theme you will hear in today's episode is about breakthroughs and transformations. From the very beginning, the mission of this organization has been to create the political will for a livable world by enabling individual breakthroughs in the exercise of personal and political power. 
In today's episode, you will also meet one of the newest Citizens Climate staff members, Stephanie Mungia. Stephanie Mungia is a PhD student researching coastal wetlands management in the Caribbean, her first home. She will give us an update of the many ways the organization has changed over the years, all while staying faithful to the core values of optimism, integrity, relationships, personal power, diversity, and a constant commitment to bipartisanship. Back in our first episode, Madeline Perra also made an appearance and talked about her vision for this podcast, and she shares her very first lobbying experience. I was about to die of nervousness. I had that feeling of, who am I to talk to Congress? Why would they listen to a first grade teacher? Why would they care what I have to say? But they did listen, and they continue to listen. Madeline has learned a lot since then. She particularly understands the need to encourage each other in this work. She shared with me her thoughts behind this new podcast. It's hard to be a climate advocate. It's hard to point your nose into what's happening out there and talk to your neighbors. And so I, I wanted to be kind of a, a reminder of, of the bigger picture and of who we are and of, of that we're not alone. I want it to be like having a little mini conference, you know, like that's what we get out of the conference here is that sense of connection and inspiration and, and hope. So that's, that's what I'd like the radio show to do. I actually feel that connection as I work on each episode and imagine you doing your climate work, taking a few moments to check in with me by listening to the show. In producing that first episode, I conducted two extended interviews with Marshall Saunders and Mark Reynolds. Their openness and intimacy took me by surprise. Their inspiration and belief in the power of everyday people doing extraordinary things, I believe will move you too. In fact, (laughs) you may want to have some tissues nearby as you listen to Marshall and Mark share their stories and the story of Citizens Climate Lobby's beginning. In this story, two businessmen caught up in their own lives and careers experience personal breakthroughs. Through their friendship, they start a climate movement. Meet Marshall Saunders. He first became concerned about climate change in 2006. A year later, he founded Citizens Climate Lobby. Since that time, CCL has grown in numbers and influence with over 35,000 volunteer lobbyists. They meet members of Congress. They engage the public through the media. They regularly facilitate respectful and thoughtful conversations about climate solutions. Marshall Saunders has created a culture of caring and respect for others and responsibility for how we live on the planet. But from his earliest years, you would never guess he would go in this direction. Like, I wasn't a mean green activist or anything like that. I was in business, for goodness sake. I was in shopping center construction and building and paving over the land. Yet he literally paved paradise and put in a parking lot. He was that guy. Marshall Saunders hailed from a conservative family of entrepreneurs in Texas. On the outside, he looked like a confident, successful businessman. But inside, he felt isolated, afraid, and angry. I pulled myself away from other people to be 
separate. And I summed it up as separate and superior. That was my way of going through life. I'm essentially afraid, afraid of people. It starts with fear and separateness, but it can proceed to, you know, even to hatred. But then life took a strange turn, and reluctantly, at first, Marshall went along with it. A friend invited me to go to a workshop on personal growth. Uh, I went to this thing. I thought, what am I doing here? I can see all these people need to be here, but what am I doing here? And the guy who was leading us says, we don't get many people like you here. <laughs> How did you get here? I said, I walked walked out that night. I said, I'm not coming back. I'm not coming back tomorrow. It's a three-day workshop. And there were two young ladies who pleaded with me in such a way that there's, you know, there's something here for you. I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll give it another day. And he stuck it out. Marshall began a journey of self-awareness that made him more sensitive to the suffering of others. Over the years, he then used his business savvy to assist people harmed by hunger and poverty. He joined an organization called Results. They used an innovative approach to address hunger in the world. They called on and trained volunteer advocates who successfully lobbied lawmakers and world leaders. Marshall volunteered with results for 17 years. He built community, and he broke out of that isolation he felt for so long. He also began to open up to the world around him to see and feel. Decades after that first self-improvement seminar, Marshall Saunders came to a place where he could no longer ignore the changing world around him. He came face to face with the seriousness of climate change. Well, the, f- the first thing I remember was in the everyday paper, there was a, uh, an article and it said that in five years, everybody is going to be talking about climate change. And I thought, I think that's right. You know, it just felt like in myself, it was right. I didn't say anything out loud. When the movie An Inconvenient Truth came out, I went to see it. And I thought, holy socks, I had no idea how much trouble we'd gotten ourselves into. Alarmed by the reality of climate change, Marshall needed to do something immediately. He first turned to the various groups already doing climate work. He respected them, but felt that they did not have a way for him to get involved. So, like the entrepreneur he was... Marshall realized he needed to start his own group to do something that hadn't been done before. But he needed help, and he knew where to turn. You know, I knew I couldn't run it. If I tried to run, it wasn't going to go very far. But I did know Mark. I had met Mark in the improvement seminars, self-improvement seminars that I had taken. Mark, knowing him and knowing he could run it,
Meet Mark Reynolds. Like Marshall, Mark, too, was a businessman, a successful, fast-talking, ambitious, and confident businessman. I was leading in-house productivity programs for companies. Boeing and NASA were my primary customers. I was leading programs to, to improve the effectiveness of their key people. I loved it, and I think I did it pretty well. I would also get comments like, other programs delivered workshops, you changed our lives. Mark saw what was going on in the world around him, but like many of us, he could not face it. Not yet. I had a burning passion for the environment that I had kept stuffed down. I can't stand to see animals lose habitat. So if you'd see something in the paper about, you know, this animal doesn't have, you know, enough room to live in, I'd just turn the page. I couldn't even, I couldn't read it. There wasn't really something that was on the surface of a burning passion. There was a more like, I think things might be worse than I think they are, and if I ignore it long enough, I'm sure that somebody else will fix it. Marshall wasn't going to let that happen. He saw something special in Mark, yet he recognized that getting Mark to head up this new climate endeavor was a hard sell. Risky business. At the time, he had three kids in college and well-employed. Was he going to take a big risk? Because I was the sole funder of the thing. Was he going to do that? And for a good while, he, you know, he, he just wanted to coach me without leaving his employment. Marshall started approaching me and saying that he wanted me to come run the organization. And this seemed like the single stupidest idea I'd ever heard. Combining Congress and global warming. Like you take the two most screwed up things, oh, let's combine them. <laughs> you know, what can be better than that? <laughs> so actually what my strategy was, if I could just help him a little bit, and give him enough advice that he'd leave me alone that I could with good conscience say I helped out a little bit. I would meet with him once a month. We would have breakfast at this place called Hobnob Hill. And he would bring me a little bit more science and I would get a bit of a pit in my stomach. So I was getting kind of an annoying, oh, this might be worse and his thing might work out. All of Marshall's lobbying efforts began to pay off. One day, Mark agreed to head to Washington, D.C. with Marshall and scientist Danny Richter. Marshall and Danny wanted to convince members of Congress and their staffs that cap-and-trade was a bad idea. Instead, they should consider a fee on carbon. Even though Mark rolled his eyes at the whole excursion, he went along for the ride. God, we felt great, like we're going to move the world. And uh, Mark says, yeah, three sorry asses moving. <laughs> three sorry asses. And the first day, we were terrible. Absolutely terrible. Almost every person without directly saying it just showed us the door. We went back that night and I said, you know, convincing people that cap and trade is a bad thing and that a carbon tax is a better thing isn't working. How about we try something else? And so I said, how about if tomorrow we only go in and see if we can find if we have some common ground with these people? And if we can establish that, let's see what happens. So what happened then was every meeting that day was mind-blowing. And that really scared me because I thought, whoa, uh, everything I've learned that applies to everything else could work here. And if this works, can I walk away from it? <laughs> you know, so like, could you look yourself in the mirror ever again? Could you look at your kids if you said, I think I have something that could work, but it looks too hard, so let's not do it. 
So that moment was actually realizing working with people the way I think you should work with people could work. I had to reevaluate everything at that point. On that trip to DC, Mark, Marshall, and Danny began to develop a new way to engage people in conversations around climate change. These so-called sorry asses landed on something extraordinary. Finding common ground is an underutilized tool in connecting with other people around the politically charged topic of global warming. Leading with admiration and respect builds relationships with people who could have never imagined working together. You know, I think that what's easy, what's lazy, is to just know what you don't like about people or what you oppose. It doesn't take anything of people. It takes something more to say, what do I have in common with them? People have heard the phrase that I use around here a lot is admiration and respect. Where I actually pulled that from was from a, a piece that I used to read from Heidegger all the time called On Thinking. If you wanted to find a way of actually becoming a useful human being, you would try and broaden your capacity to admire and respect what you could find in people. And I don't mean this to be Pollyannish. I don't mean about anything about being nice. I mean a really a kind of fundamental trying to see people at their most fundamental place. Mark left his lucrative job to join Citizens Climate Lobby. He has since dedicated his life to pursuing climate solutions. His friendship with Marshall influenced him in many profound ways. I think of Marshall Saunders earlier in life, separate and superior, living with fear and anger. It gives me hope to see that people grow and change. We are not set in stone. This encourages me in a time of climate change when we are each trying to break through the collective silence around this contentious issue. We can feel so small, so weak in a world with loud voices that drown out reason and thoughtful discussion. Marshall took risks. He trusted other people. He saw in Mark Reynolds someone who could get the job done. And in the organization they built, they regularly call on and trust ordinary citizens to talk to powerful people about climate change. I confess that while chatting with Marshall, I broke down in tears. He has that effect on people. I asked him, how is it that he and Mark and the other staff and volunteers at CCL have been able to motivate tens of thousands of people to regularly engage in thoughtful, respectful action? He grew very tender as he explained. trust that you are magnificent. I trust that if I have a judgment, I have done a, seen enough of myself to realize how wrong I could be. And it is trusting that ordinary people can get the job done. It's a, it's a trusting in ordinary people. You know, not people who have made it, not people who are powerful, but ordinary people. You know, and if people are not demonstrating that, well, they can't. They can't. 
they need a little encouragement, a little breakthrough, like I had. So, you know, it's one step at a time. One step at a time. Today, the mission that Mark and Marshall began continues. And who better to update us about the organization than Stephanie Mungia? I currently live in Miami, Florida. I grew up in Central Florida, actually, after moving here from Puerto Rico when I was very young. De Mayagüez, de la Costa Oeste. So, Stephanie, what do you say when someone asks, what do you do? Well, most recently, I guess, my answer is I work for Citizens Climate Lobby as our student engagement manager. <laughs> I think the answer typically is a lot longer than that and somewhat depends on, on who I'm meeting and under what context because I'm also a PhD student. So it takes up quite a bit of my time outside of my full-time job and also very involved with a variety of different environmental nonprofits and scientific societies where I try to keep this sort of theme of youth engagement and diversity outreach across all of those. I am officially getting a PhD in Earth System Science, but more particularly, I'm focusing on coastal wetland management in the Caribbean. And I guess I'm a bit of a policy wonk because I'm doing all of this within the context of a multilateral environmental agreement called the Ramsar Convention, which specifically focuses on wetland conservation worldwide. So my research is on understanding the different political, economic, and social factors that are influencing its implementation and effectiveness in the Caribbean basin. I totally love how policy wongs find a home in CCL. Now, in addition to your work and studies, what are some identities that are important to you? For me, first and foremost, is being Latina. I think that's really helped me to sort of make sense of my place in the world, my place in the environmental movement. Because, of course, we experience these different topics. We experience climate change in a very particular way. Being from Puerto Rico, we've experienced climate change in a very, very strong way in recent years, of course, with Hurricane Maria and the aftermath of that and just the increasing frequency and intensity of storms that we're being affected by. That's one identity that's really important to me. I think another one is the identity of the student, which is somewhat funny because I think most people think of that as a short period of time in your life that's really closely associated with school. But I view being a student as more of a lifelong journey and commitment to learning in the various forms it may take. So even when I've not been actively in school or taking classes, I'm always trying to learn different topics learn from different communities and different people with different backgrounds. Those are the two that probably most resonate with me and that I feel like I wear that hat very often. Mark Reynolds and Marshall Saunders recognized the dangers of climate change later in their lives, when they were already established with families and jobs. Being much younger, what is your experience of climate change? Sometime in around middle school, probably, I started to think more about climate change. 
I grew up in a county where climate change wasn't exactly part of the curriculum, but we did at one point have a sequence in one of my science courses where we talked about renewable energy sources. And that got me really thinking about climate change as not only something that touches all of us in some way, but also something that all of us can do something about. And how did that lead you to work with youth and young adults around climate solutions? From a very early age, like some of my earliest memories are of camping, of going to places like the Everglades, visiting our different state parks here in Florida, and even getting to travel to national parks across the United States. For me, environmentalism was very much tied to these public spaces, these public lands, so these places that people can go and seek refuge and I think seek connection to something greater than ourselves. It was sort of through that process that I started to gain a deeper appreciation for conservation more broadly, for what it takes, for what it looks to say that you have boots on the ground doing this work. Through that, became more engaged with a variety of different environmental organizations. I think it was within that context that I came to better understand conservation as being broader than land conservation, broader than habitat protection, and started to better appreciate the intersectionality of what it means to do conservation, of what it means to actively work to protect this planet that we live on. Through that, I became interested in education quite broadly, really specifically environmental education, getting young folks and people from diverse backgrounds who typically aren't represented in the environmental space to find footing and the resources that they need to be effective in this environmental movement. I started to more deeply interrogate like habitat conservation is good and well, may not resonate with everybody because not everybody has access to public lands. I think a little bit more difficult to engage a young person on let's do something about habitat conservation. It largely looked like park cleanups or invasive species removal, whereas doing something on climate can can be a lot about choices that we make on a daily basis. And I found that that could be a really empowering framing for people to start seeing themselves as advocates and activists. And that then became a better entry point for these other topics that are maybe a little more fuzzy. Yeah, I agree that making individual changes can feel empowering. I know I sort all my recycling and at the end of the week, I feel so accomplished. (laughs) But this feeling is deceptive. I didn't do anything of significance to seriously address climate change and pollution. In fact, I recently read an article by Mark Kaufman that I'll link in the show notes. Kaufman outlines how in the early 2000s, British Petroleum first promoted the idea of the individual carbon footprint. The campaign served to distract the public. By focusing on personal behaviors and making changes in our homes, people overlooked the larger systemic issues. So I'm curious about your opinion regarding individual action versus larger systems changes. It's always easiest, I think, for those initial steps to be framed as personal choices that you can make, like eating more sustainable foods, purchasing more sustainable products, recycling, as you mentioned. And I think at the same time, that needs to be coupled with a broader conversation about how those things alone, those personal choices that we make are not necessarily was going to solve the climate crisis. But I think that they're valuable for increasing our self-efficacy. I think they make us see that there are actions we can take and every little action that we take opens the door to something bigger and bigger and bigger. That's something that I've really leaned into in my time with CCL and with coordinating the higher ed action team. 
overwhelmingly, I see college students who are interested in mobilizing on campus on things like banning single-use plastics, improving recycling practices, other efficiency practices in campus buildings, for example. I think it would be a mistake to say to those students, well, you know those things don't really make a difference in climate, right? <laughs> I think that's been one challenge that we've faced is there's this thin line between advocating for people to understand the broader reality and turning them off completely to taking any action. So for young people especially, and I came from an education background previously, so I would do this with my classes in particular, we would talk about these broader systemic issues. And honestly, it's a total downer because most students don't see an avenue to act on those. And I think with CCL, like the avenue that we provide of being able to lobby your members of Congress is definitely exciting, but it's really overwhelming for a student who's never done anything like this before. So we would talk about these systemic issues. We would talk about this need for collective action. And then we'd go back and ground it in. If that seems too big and scary for where you are in your life right now, these are some smaller actions you can start taking as an individual. And over time, I'd have students come back to me and say, hey, so I wanted to recycle at my building and I realized that my building didn't have a recycling program. So I spoke to my landlords and advocated really hard for them to put in some recycling system. And now we have one. And then that made it much easier to then shift them to, okay, great. So what can we do at the county level? Can you talk to your commissioners? What can we do at the state level? And speaking to our state representatives and little by little kind of working our way up the ladder. That tension is definitely there, but there are different strategies that we can use to help alleviate that and alleviate some of the pressure that I think young people feel because we're told constantly that there's this huge crisis and all of these systemic barriers and corporations are the only people who can really do anything about this, but we don't have any say and control over corporations. Any step that we can take to make that journey an empowering one can make a huge difference in engaging more young people in the movement. Stephanie, early on, Citizens Climate Lobby identified core values, optimism, relationships, integrity, personal power, being bipartisan, and a laser-like focus on what we see as the single most impactful solution to climate change, a national carbon fee and dividend. I know for Marshall Saunders, personal power was the value he spoke about the most. That's so key to our identity as an organization. It's funny because it's not one of the values that I hear echoed most often when I speak to students. Like I might ask them, what are the values that you think are most powerful? A lot of them really like the optimism piece because that's something that they haven't found in other climate organizations before. They talk about the integrity, liking having that science-based foundation backing everything that they're talking about, but they very rarely mention the personal power, which is funny because the actions that they relate to me that they're taking really speak to the power of that value. They really speak to this idea that students come into this feeling overwhelmed by the scope and magnitude of climate change through their relationship with CCL come out at the other end feeling like they really can do something quite powerful, whether that's mobilizing other college students on campus or speaking directly to members of Congress and developing those relationships. They come out of this much stronger than they went in and feeling more of that self-advocacy that I was describing. For me as well, that's incredibly powerful. I've had the opportunity to work with different environmental organizations. A lot of the focus has been on those kinds of individual actions. And only recently have I seen them pivoting more towards this advocacy space. 
which is extremely important, but not always with the right tools to make all members feel like they can participate in that advocacy. That's something that CCL does that in some ways is quite radical because that's a big part of our focus is making sure that everybody feels like they can participate in that process, that they can participate in that most fundamental aspect of our democracy, which is going out there and using our voices and making them be heard. And what about you? As student engagement manager, what values resonate most deeply for you? I actually very explicitly remember saying how excited I was to interview for this position because diversity was the stated value of CCL. I've been involved with environmental nonprofits long enough to know that we all suffer from a diversity problem, especially the bigger environmental nonprofits. Of course, there are excellent BIPOC-led nonprofits that are leading in the environmental justice space and who clearly don't suffer in that regard. They have great people of color who are engaged in the, in the movement in a very, I think, different way than these white-led organizations have approached it in the past and a much more inclusive way. What I've gotten most out of that value is that it's not only about expressing who we are, because I think there's a lot of work we can still do in increasing our diversity, but it's about expressing who we intend to be. That intent and so clearly centering that and making that level with our other organizational values speaks volumes. I think it means that this is something we we are truly serious about. We're really committed to it. My entire position is one form of that. It's focusing more explicitly on this intergenerational equity piece, which is so critical. But it's one part of that broader conversation about how do we include folks and elevate and amplify voices that have not typically taken center stage in the climate movement. That's very powerful. And even though it's not something that we necessarily, within the context of our higher ed action team, is not a value that tends to come up, it is something that I very intentionally try to inject into everything we do. Like we have our Climate Career Connection series where we invite speakers to come in and talk about how they pursued careers in the climate sector and the many different paths that they take and really intentionally trying to bring in voices that are young, that are BIPOC, that are queer, that come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, and as much as possible to to reflect those values that CCL tries to live by. It's great as kind of a, a guiding light. I don't think we're there yet, but I also tell all of the organizations I've worked with that there is no there. There is no endpoint. If we are truly committed to diversity, it means that we're committed to a constant introspection and interrogation of ourselves and our values and of what we're doing that isn't including all voices. So to me, I think it's that intent that makes that value so powerful because we are working towards it actively and intentionally. With your studies on coastal wetlands management, I imagine the role of biodiversity is critical to maintaining healthy environments. So from an organizational point of view, we've grown more diverse. And as you say, we have plenty of room to grow. It's so valuable that we're getting to hear from voices who are older, who really founded this organization and and built these values that we live on at the same time that we are getting to hear from younger voices as well and from these voices that are helping to diversify the climate movement. I really want to challenge people to listen to all of these different sides of the story, all of these different perspectives, and think about, you know, what am I contributing? What do my unique experiences contribute to this conversation? Is there something that's missing? I really love it when people reach out and 
tell me, hey, like this was a really great activity that you put together, but did you consider, you know, what folks in this community might have to say about it? Situations like these, where we are put in conversation with each other, where we're able to listen to these different perspectives side by side, just make the conversation so much richer and provide so much more opportunity to build a climate movement that we can all feel represented by, that we can all feel empowered by, that we can all feel like we have a place in, that we belong in it. For any young person who's out there listening to this, I hope that you will take on that challenge and think about the role that you have to play in this conversation. Many thanks to Stephanie Mungia, Citizens Climate Lobby's Student Engagement Manager. To learn more about our diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, along with our core values, look in the About section at citizensclimatelobby.org. Are you looking to improve your skills as a climate communicator? To increase your impact in your community and beyond? Or maybe get a brush up on climate change science basics? Citizens Climate offers free online trainings. You can choose from pre-recorded interactive trainings that you go through at your own pace or join us Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern time for live trainings. To see a list of our trainings, visit community.citizensclimate.org. At the top of the screen, click on resources and trainings. There you'll find a link to all training topics. That website again is community.citizensclimate.org. Now it is time for the art house. Jody Heights is a singer-songwriter. In the sea of singer-songwriters, she stands out. Not only does she have a classically honed technique that captures a Broadway style in her voice and contemporary rock in her piano playing, she also writes brilliant lyrics that dive deep into everyday life. Her songs can be playful and heartbreaking. Recently, she was moved to write a song about our world, which is being rocked by the impacts of climate change. I asked her to tell us about the song and then share it with us. Hi, I'm Jody Heights, and I'm a singer-songwriter from Boston, Massachusetts. I just released a song called The Iceberg about climate change, and I'm honored to have it featured on The Art House. As an artist, I try to observe commonalities of human experience, issues I see large groups of humanity grappling with, and to write about them. Climate change was a subject I knew I wanted to tackle for a while, but it was a bit daunting uh, to write about such a politically charged subject. I wanted to avoid getting up on any kind of soapbox, and I didn't want the lyrics to be preachy or angry, so I wanted to tell a story instead. Rather than an argument for or against any particular issue, I asked myself a few different questions. What if we didn't take care of the Earth? What if we didn't do anything to reverse the damage that we've caused? What if we caused our own extinction? Who would tell our story and why? Those questions led to this idea of an alien classroom with a teacher dispassionately presenting a lesson to the class about extinct species, and today they're studying the human race. The teacher's asking students, how can we learn from the mistakes that humans made and avoid that same fate. It's dark. (laughs) 
it's it's a dark twist, but it's a serious subject. You know, whatever your political views are on climate change, the fact is that treating a finite planet as if it has infinite resources is eventually going to catch up with us. We're already seeing the effects of that. We've forgotten a lot of what our ancestors used to know that we're not separate from nature. We're part of it, and this is the only place that we can viably live, at least at the moment. I want to treat the planet I live on with respect and leave something more than an apocalyptic landscape for future generations to survive in. I just find our tendency to argue in circles. And the lack of action on this subject to be extremely frustrating, but I'm the eternal optimist. I still hold out hope that it's never too late to save ourselves. There was once a time when humans ruled the world. See, here's a display of their remains. Business and technology were going strong, but consumption couldn't be sustained. Hard to
you can learn more about Jody Heights and her music at her website, jodyheights.com. Jody is spelled with an I, jodyheights.com. And if you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. National Youth Action Team Coordinator Sharon Bagatelle supports youth under 18 and their adult allies to build a vibrant national youth network within Citizens Climate Lobby. Sharon has over 30 years experience as an educator, curriculum developer, and a program coordinator in a variety of formal and informal educational settings. From her first days as a first grade teacher, Sharon's twin passions have been environmental education and empowered civic engagement. And working with CCL Youth fits both those passions well. Hey, Peterson. I've just come from CCL's conference in DC where my team and I debuted climate classroom curriculum for middle schoolers. After developing and piloting the program in Long Beach, California, we're really excited to take it nationwide. More and more students are learning about climate change in school, but often they don't learn about solutions or how to get engaged in action. So they can be left disheartened, sometimes despairing and powerless. Climate Classroom offers solutions and skills for youth to take meaningful action and get civically engaged. The curriculum takes students on a brief exploration of the problem of climate change through a justice lens, then moves into exploring a range of solutions using the En-ROAD simulator. Through that tool, students learn about carbon pricing as one of the most effective of those solutions. They explore the role of government in policymaking and research what policies Congress is currently working on. And then they learn skills for civic engagement contacting Congress, writing letters to the editor, meeting with community leaders, and yes, lobbying, all the things CCL volunteers know how to do so well. And just like CCL volunteers, students finish up the program with a strong sense of agency and empowerment. As Youth Action Coordinator, I'm often asked by volunteers, how do I reach out to schools? The curriculum is designed for CCL volunteers to take into classrooms beginning next fall. We've carefully written out all the steps and provided all the background information and materials needed. It was a huge undertaking, and we are delighted to be putting the finishing touches on this curriculum at last. We'll be doing a training on August 4th via Citizens Climate University for anyone interested in taking this curriculum into their local middle school. The curriculum itself will be housed on CCL's youth website, youth.citizensclimatelobby.org. To learn more about the Climate Classroom Middle School curriculum, you can contact me, Sharon Bagatelle, at youth.citizensclimatelobby.org. Thank you, Sharon. If you have good news you want to share on the show, email me, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Thank you for joining me for episode 73 of Citizens Climate Radio. If you like what you hear and you want to support the work we do, visit citizensclimateeducation.org. There you'll learn how to make a tax-deductible contribution. Here at Citizens Climate Education, we have a solution that will greatly reduce pollution, which leads to climate change. We believe 
that putting a price on carbon will make a huge difference. We want to tell you about it. Visit cclusa.org slash price on carbon. Citizens Climate Radio is written and produced by me, Peterson Toscano. Other technical support from Ricky Bradley and Brett Cease. Social media assistance from Barrett Theron, Ashley Hunt-Mortorano, Flannery Winchester, Katie Zarkreski, and Steve Volk. Moral support from Madeline Perra. The music on today's show comes from EpidemicSound.com. You can follow us on Twitter at CitizenC Radio. That's Citizens, the letter C, radio, at CitizenC Radio. You can learn more about the podcast and see our show notes and find links to our guest over at citizensclimatelobby.org. Just look under the blog tab and you'll find the podcast at citizensclimatelobby.org. Citizens Climate Radio is a project of Citizens Climate Education. <laughs>